You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, we're continuing our series on the uh, book of John. John, who's building a case for people to believe in the gospel, in the message that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what the whole cumulative effort of his, of his gospel is. It's to build a case that you would put your hope and your faith in Jesus. And uh, today we're looking at John the 6th chapter. If you want to turn and hold that uh, in readiness, if you have a smartphone or a tablet, you want to look that up. John 6, starting with verse 16. We live in a time right now where innovation is flourishing. Technology and all kinds of unique new inventions are coming online all the time. Who would have believed just a few years ago that we would have right now self-driving cars and trucks as well as we would have these things called drones that could deliver things to your home, even pizzas to your front step? Who would have ever thought? And some of you are going, there are drones that deliver pizzas? (laughs) There are, not here yet, but they're, they're coming. We live at a time where, truthfully, this, these kinds of things are just the beginning. There's so much uniqueness and, and innovation that's taking place. Here are some of the most amazing innovations, by my, my filter anyway, over the last year, couple of years. First of all, this kid, he's a Kansas high school student. What he did, everything is on tablet now, so he didn't need his locker. So what he did is he turned it into a soda machine. Now, of course, the school shut it down because he was making a profit. But think about that. This is a high school kid. Soda machine. Here's another thing. They have invented a tattoo ink that will only last a year, and then it fades out. How cool is that? I mean, now you can continue to work on your, your canvas, right? And, and now, and I think this is brilliant, they have come up with a cream that doesn't cause severe inflammation that will erase the tattoos that you regret, all right? I have a friend who has a tattoo on his left arm of his ex-wife. His current wife is not a big fan of that, okay? He would love that cream right there. They have developed a a slow-melting ice cream. How awesome is that? I mean, how many of you have ever had this experience right there? Or worse than that, your kid had it in the back seat of your car, Right? They have a slow-melting ice cream. Now, this, is, this to me was one of the coolest things that I read. There is a guy who has invented a phone case that captures RF energy. That's radio frequency energy, and it converts it. The, the case converts it into energy, and it recharges your cell phone. Now, it's probably like $10,000, but it's really cool. Think about that. You'd never have to plug in because it's such a burden to plug in our cell phones to charge them, right? How about this one? Now, here, don't, don't put this up yet. Not that we need this, okay? Not that we need this, but they have invented a drinking fountain for your dog, all right? It's called the posset, okay? They put their paw right, like faucet, only posset, you get it? I know, it's terrible. I, I know. And then this one I, I absolutely love. If you've ever been on a flight and you've kind of jousted with the person next to you for control of the armrest, this is called the sorigami, and it actually equally divides the armrest. 
Okay? So this little thing right here. So everybody has a little bit of armrest. So you can take that with you on the next flight you take. And then this, this, to me, this was the best of the inventions. Watch this. This guy converted the ice maker in his refrigerator to not dispense ice, but to dispense pizza rolls. <laughs> Every guy in here going, I got to get that, right? <laughs> okay, think about that. We live at a time where new creations are, are coming online all the time, and they're often really amazing. I mean, we see them and we go, I'd love to see that, or I'd love to experience that, or, I'd love to own that. But none of, these, none of these creations, none of these innovations can compare with the things that the disciples of Jesus witnessed. Our text today focuses on one such event where Jesus shows up in such a miraculous kind of incredible way and he does it at just the right time to rescue the disciples. What he does is more than amazing. It is pure awesomeness. Some of you remember that word. So, I want us to look at the text this morning. We'll study a little bit about this event, this incredible, this incredible moment, not only in the lives of the disciples, it surely was revolutionary to them, but for us today to be able to read it and to see the context of who Jesus, who Jesus was and who he is even today. Now, in this talk, what we're going to find are several insights into how Jesus rescues his people. So keep that in mind as we go through this. I want to give you a bit of background to our story before we jump into it. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Now that's 5,000 men plus women and children. So it was 5,000 men plus women and children. So it was more than 5,000. And he fed them with one kid's lunch, five loaves and two fish, period. And then this is what John writes about that after that event happened. Look what he says in 14 and 15. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet, this is the Messiah, who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain to be to, uh, by himself. He withdrew to the mountain by himself. The people were so fired up by what they had just witnessed that they were preparing to make Jesus their king. And this is where our study begins. This is where our story begins today. We read in verses 16 and 7, John writes, When evening came, this is the evening of the day of the miracle, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and they set out across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. When studying this, we're studying it from the perspective of John's vantage point. John writes about this story. But John's not the only gospel writer that does. Matthew and Mark also write about this same story. And what's cool about it is we don't just have to see it from one person's perspective. We get to see it from three different vantage points. So we get additional insight. One of those, one of those kind of little pieces or nuggets of information that's different from what John says is what Mark says in Mark 6.45. This he says, immediately after the miracle, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. Now, this word made right there, it sounds kind of 
you know, laid back. It's not a, an, a real intense word. But in the Greek, it actually is intense. Some people in certain translations translate that word compelled. The word is anakazo. That's the Greek word. And it means to force or urge or insist. What Jesus did is he insisted that his guys get into the boat and head off to Capernaum. Because he knew they were in danger. He knew they were in danger. Now the danger was the crowd that Jesus had just fed was stirred up. And there was a movement that was beginning to come together to make him king. And some of the disciples would have loved to have been powerful and famous. But this wasn't the plan of God. And Jesus broke it up immediately. He shut down the party right then and left. Then we read in verse 18... John 6, verse 18. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. So they start out. The guys start out. Jesus sends them out across the Sea of Galilee. Soon darkness falls on them, and the wind kicked up. In fact, he says a strong wind was blowing when they first started rowing. But it continued to get worse. John writes, the waters grew rough. Keep in mind. That John, as he writes this, John was a professional fisherman, as were others among the disciples. These were seasoned veterans who had, who had worked and made a living on this very lake, the Sea of Galilee. But they weren't able to do much. They weren't able to make much progress toward getting to their destination. Because the storm was serious. It wasn't uncommon to have a storm like this. But this one was keeping them from making much progress. During the storm, like the one described here, even an experienced fisherman like John and his comrades would become alarmed. Not only were they alarmed, but can you imagine how freaked out the other disciples were? Which brings us to the first insight. And that is this. We have to realize we will face storms. Realize we will face storms. Jesus rescues, but that doesn't mean that Jesus insulates us from all the storms in life. He doesn't. And just like a boat on the Sea of Galilee, you can be enjoying smooth sailing in your life when all of a sudden a storm blows in. A storm can blow in in a relationship. It can come as a major crisis in your job situation. It can blow in even in a conflict with someone here at church. A ministry friend of mine by the name of Jimmy Fields. This is a a picture of Jimmy and his wife, Diana. I've known Jimmy for a number of years now. He currently serves with the Vineyard Church here in Lexington. He'd been having a number of health challenges over the course of several months, but they just couldn't pinpoint what the problem was. He went through numerous tests, countless doctor's visits, and plenty of time spent in the hospital when they finally determined that Jimmy had stage 4 cancer, a really rare type of mesothelioma. He's recent, he recently had a six-hour surgery as part of his treatment, and now he's undergoing chemotherapy. I can tell you, this was a storm that just blew up. Nobody saw this coming. This guy really was a picture of, of really good health. And then all of a sudden, here he is, in the fight for his life. That was a storm nobody saw, nobody anticipated. And storms come that way. And you know, as a favor to me, 
if you wouldn't mind, those of you that are taking notes, just write Jimmy Field's name down. And will you pray for him? I know they'd be grateful for that. Well, a question might arise in your mind about this storm. Did Jesus know that the storm was coming? What do you think? Did Jesus know? Absolutely. Yeah, he knows everything. He's omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. Then why did he deliberately send his guys out into a storm? Why did he send them out into danger? Well, quite the opposite is true here. Jesus, Jesus recognized that he needed to get them away from this crowd. As he sent them off, he was rescuing them from a greater danger, a danger that easily could have swept them up in this fanatical crowd to head in a direction that was not God's plan. The disciples had experienced tremendous joy in being part of this thrilling miracle, and now they had to face a storm and learn to trust the Lord more. I love what Warren Wiersbe said, one of my favorite authors. He said, the feeding of the 5,000 was the lesson, but the storm was the examination after the lesson. They saw this miracle, but would they really trust Jesus? When you find yourself in a storm, you owe it to yourself to ask the question, how did I get here? What happened? What happened? Because there are different reasons why we find ourselves in storms. Sometimes, the first is that we find ourselves caught up in a storm because we have disobeyed the Lord. We've disobeyed the Lord. Just like Jonah. Some of you know the story of Jonah. If you don't, let me give you just a little bit of an overview. God spoke to Jonah. In Jonah, the first chapter, verses 1 and 2, this is what Jonah, this is what Jonah writes, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its, of, because its wickedness has come up before me. God told him, go to Nineveh. But Jonah, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. The Bible tells us that Nineveh is a great city. That's what it says there in the first chapter of the book of Jonah. It's a great city. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And it was the home of 120,000 or so of Israel's enemies. We can't be completely sure why Jonah hated the Assyrians. But the prophet Nahum may give us some insights as he paints a picture of the inhabitants of Assyria as a ruthless bloodthirsty people. In fact, the Assyrians left monuments to their cruelty. These were these long, boastful inscriptions etched in stone describing how they tortured and slaughtered the people who opposed them. That could cause anybody to not like them. The Israelites had reasons to fear and even hate the Ninevites. But God told Jonah to go to Assyria. Go right to the capital of Israel's greatest enemy, and warn the people there in Nineveh. Warn them to repent from their evil lifestyle or God would destroy them. But Jonah apparently thought Assyria should be destroyed. So he went as fast as he could in the opposite direction. Let me give you a context here. If you look at this map, Jonah is right over here. He goes instead, he's right here at Gath Hefer. He, instead of going over to Joppa, right? 
where, which he did, which was a port city, got on a, on a boat and was headed all the way over here to Tarshish, all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. Instead of that, what he should have done is just gone up here northeast to Nineveh. He didn't even have to get on a boat to get to Nineveh. Some of you know this story. Jonah finds himself shortly after getting on board of this, um, after boarding this ship, he finds himself in, this, in a similar storm on the Mediterranean Sea. And he ends up, as a result of that storm, in the belly of a fish. And eventually he goes to Nineveh to preach and to usher in a great time of repentance in Nineveh. God's prophet to a pagan people, he preaches and they repent. Sometimes the storms that we're in are because of the decisions that we've made to rebel against God, to sin in our own lives, to reject His calling or His word. There were always consequences to sin. Always. And some of them manifest themselves in the context of storms. But there's another reason why we find ourselves in storms. Sometimes the storm comes because we have obeyed the Lord. And that's what happens when the disciples do what Jesus said, go get in the boat. When that happens, this is a test. And we can trust our Savior to pray for us, to come to us, and to even deliver us through those storms. This is the type of storm the disciples found themselves in. So, John goes on, verse 19. This is, a, this is kind of an important verse in this whole text. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. When they had rowed about three or four miles, John, uh, John writes, which tells us the disciples were still a considerable distance from the shore at Capernaum. The Gospel of Mark says that the boat was actually in the middle of the lake. So it wasn't even close to the shoreline. A storm going on all around them. And as the disciples look back, they're terrified to see this human form that is approaching them. It's coming across the water. Mark also says they thought he was a ghost. Well, yeah, that's a pretty good explanation if you think about it. Because nobody, no human being can walk on water. I wonder if somebody nudged John or maybe Peter and said, have you ever seen that before? And they were speechless because they had never seen it before. Nobody walks on water. That has to be a ghost. And Mark continued. He said in verse 49 that they cried out. And then in verse 50, he says, because they all saw him and were terrified. I wonder if you and I, not knowing any of this, had been in that same situation, would we have reacted any differently? I doubt it. I, but we would probably all be freaking out. In the midst of the disciples' fear, we see another insight into how Jesus rescues his people. Jesus uses his power. He uses his power now, Jesus has a supernatural kind of power. He doesn't have simple kind of power. He doesn't have the elected kind of power. He doesn't have the, I built this with my own two hands kind of power. He has supernatural kind of power. Jesus has the walking on the water kind of power. Jesus walking on water is something no one does except Jesus because he is God. 
This is so far removed from what is normal that it totally freaked out the disciples. They're terrified. Even the ones who were fishermen. Maybe especially the ones who were fishermen. How is any of this possible? You may remember the prologue of this gospel. The very first message that we had on the this study out of John. We looked at the introduction or what's called the prologue. And the very first verse says simply this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, God, was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God in the flesh, John writes. But his divine nature was masked and hidden by his humanity. It was a veil of sorts that covered his deity. But sometimes his divine nature was revealed. It was as if Jesus pulled back the veil just a little bit so that a handful of people could see that he wasn't just human. He was actually God in the flesh. That's what happened on this occasion. Jesus did what no human could possibly do. This won't be the last time either that we'll see him kind of pull the curtain back, pull the veil back, and let others in to see his amazing supernatural deified powers. We'll see it later on in the study of John again. Verse 20 then says, But he said to them, now they're freaking out, remember? He said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. I don't know that calms them right away. Mark gives us a little more insight. He says, Because they all saw him and were terrified, immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Jesus said, take courage. Take courage. Which gives us insight into this story. The third insight. Jesus can calm our fears. Jesus can calm our fears. Jesus' words in this this verse are very, very significant. The disciples were told to be encouraged. They were told to not be afraid. And then he says this. He said, it is I. All right? Which the Greek for this is ego, I, me. Excuse me. Ego, imai. A little dyslexic in my speech. What does this mean? We translate it, it is I. But it literally means I am. This is where we get our word ego from. The Greek word Ego actually is where we get our... And it refers to I. I am. Now, why is that significant? When he says, I am, he's explaining who he is and why he has this ability to walk on water. I am is a direct reference that he is God. God the Father. He's connected with him. He's the same one. Jesus is able to rescue mankind. He was able to rescue the disciples that day because... He's God. Now, there are a number of I am statements that John records in his gospel. And all of these together form a claim to deity based on the divine name of God. The name I am comes from a conversation that God had with Moses back in Exodus, the third chapter. I would encourage you to go back and read the the whole chapter. It's quite insightful. But what's basically going on, if you're not familiar with the story is that God comes to Moses and he taps him on the shoulder and he says, I want you to go to Egypt and bring my people out. And Moses says, I'm not your guy. 
And the conversation is one of God saying, yeah, you're my guy. And Moses giving all these excuses. And right there in the middle of this story, this conversation, we read Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Listen to what he says. It says, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Really? That's your best? That's the best you got, Moses? Right? Then what shall I tell them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. These disciples... They were Jews who were studying under a Jewish rabbi. They knew this story. They knew the name of God. So when Jesus uses the term I am, they know he's explaining that he's God. It's a direct reference. No one would ever even casually, flippantly use that term. But see him walk on water? See him feed 5,000 people plus women and children? With a small boy's sack lunch, they probably already knew. Or at least they were getting a sense that he's he's not like us. They probably knew he was God. Verse 21 then says this. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. They had never seen anything like what they had just witnessed. We've never seen anything like it. And they knew that it was impossible. Only when Jesus said, don't be afraid, did they take him aboard the boat. Now, both Matthew and Mark record that when Jesus got into the boat, the storm died down, which gives us insight number four. And that is this. Everything changes when Jesus gets in your boat. Everything changes when Jesus gets into your boat. Mark 6, 51 says, Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. The storm just stopped. Matthew says, And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When the storm stopped, Mark points out that the disciples were completely amazed. And Matthew said they worshipped him, saying that truly you are the Son of God. Which brings us to the fifth and final insight we draft from this story. When Jesus rescues you, worship him. Worship him. That's the only thing you really can do. Think about it. When he rescues you, he deserves all your praise, all your worship. As we worship and praise him in this service, I want to challenge you to think about the times when you were in the midst of the storm... And he pulled you out of that. I was talking to a guy this morning who has gone through a tremendously difficult time in his marriage, which finally ended in divorce. Not something he wanted. But God was so faithful. He was just sharing with me how faithful God was in the midst of that storm. We ought to praise him for that. We ought to praise him. This story about the disciples rowing into a storm and then Jesus showing up is a great illustration of how he intercedes for us when we're in the midst of a storm that we experience in our lives. Life often consists of facing down resistance. There are times when you're afraid or you're worried, you're struggling, you're trying to get somewhere and yet you feel like you're going nowhere. 
trying to make it to the shoreline, trying to get to the finish line. However, you're making no progress. It's as if everything is pushing against you. The resistance is too great to overcome. And then you feel as though you're about to be engulfed by your circumstances. You're about to be foreclosed on. You're about to lose your job, to be fired or laid off. You feel as though you're about to be neglected again or rejected again. Or maybe you're going through a divorce and you have no idea what to expect on the other side. It is engulfing you. All your circumstances seem to be overwhelming you. It's about ready to sink you. But as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, there's hope. There's hope. That's what happens when Christ comes into the life of a person. He doesn't take away all the difficulties and make our lives easy. But he gets us through the darkness. He gets us through the violence. He gets us through the storms. And one day, he's going to come back to earth. And those who put their faith in him will arrive safely on the shore of heaven. And all the storms will then be behind us for all eternity. So as Jesus would say, if you're in the midst of a storm, take courage. Take courage. I wonder if you're currently in a storm. Maybe it's a big one. Maybe it's a small one. Is there a part of your life that seems to be completely out of shape? It's, it's totally in chaos. Why not call on Jesus? I mean, seriously, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? One of the names that Jesus is called in Scripture is the name Savior, which means redeemer or liberator, deliverer, or even rescuer. Jesus is called Savior because he rescues us from the ultimate storm, the ultimate end, which is hell and eternal torment and separation from God. When Jesus is in your boat, he changes everything. If you find yourself facing storms, invite him into your boat. If you've never done that before, invite him into your life so that he can rescue you. But remember this, he only comes aboard when he's invited. He doesn't force himself on you. He doesn't force himself into your life. Mark says in Mark 6, 51, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. And John says in verse 21, then they were willing to take him, then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. When Jesus entered into the boat, the boat was then right at the shoreline. It had been in the middle of the lake, and now it was right at the shoreline. Another miracle. The storm stopped. Another miracle. Jesus walking on water. That was a miracle. All kinds of things were happening in that moment. But when Jesus got in the boat, everything changed. Maybe you need that kind of change in your life. Maybe maybe you're in a relationship that's unhealthy. It's dysfunctional. Maybe, maybe you need to invite Jesus into the middle of that. He can repair that. He can redeem that. Maybe, maybe you have an addiction. Maybe you're struggling with drugs or alcohol. It's just out of control. Maybe it's pornography. 
and nobody knows about it. You show up here and you put on a good face and every week everybody thinks, man, you're, that person's got it all together. And you know on the inside you are struggling. You are not winning. This storm is owning you. Why don't you invite Jesus in? He can come and set you free. Maybe you're caught up in another type of sin that has consumed you. Maybe there's someone else in your life your spouse doesn't know about. And maybe you haven't had any kind of inappropriate, you know, relationship, but maybe you've thought about it. Or maybe you have. Maybe you've crossed several lines and now you feel like you can't go back. And you've created this storm in your life. You know, Jesus can forgive you. And he can liberate you from that experience. He can bring you out of that storm. Or maybe you're just empty on the inside. And that's been growing and growing and growing. Like a storm that, it was a a clear blue sky day. And now all of a sudden, everything around you seems to make no sense. Have no meaning, no purpose. You feel empty on the inside. As though there is this huge gaping hole in your heart. Something is missing. Jesus can feel that. He comes in with the Holy Spirit and He will give you a purpose for your life. What do you have to lose? Jesus is God. He's the great I Am. And He has the power to calm storms. So why not call on Him? Why not call on Him? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You that You calm storms. That there's not, some, there's not one thing that happens in this life that is a surprise to you. Even when it happens in our lives and it catches us off guard, you're always in control. I know, God, that there are some people in this room that are facing storms. And there are some who are here today who will face storms very soon. They're going to be caught off guard. Give us a stronger faith. <coughs> Lord, help us to trust you in the midst of that. And if it's the result of our sin, God, help us. Help us to turn back to you. Maybe some of us have drifted. And as a result, there's sin in our lives. And that has brought on a storm. Lord, help us to turn our backs on that and turn back to you. Maybe there's somebody here who never, ever have they had reached out to you, Lord, and invited you into their life. Whether they're in the midst of a storm or not, I pray today would be the day they would reach out and invite you into their life because we know, God, when you come in, you change everything. Lord, I also know that there are some here who their hearts are heavy because someone they love is going through a storm. Maybe one they've caused or maybe like my friend Jimmy something that they never saw coming. They didn't do anything to cause it. But they're going through a storm. Lord, will you, will you give relief in those moments? Will you give faith to those that need it? Will you cause those who are in the midst of the storm because of their own doing to turn from their sinful ways and turn back to you? Lord, I know that when it's my storm may not be big to others, may not seem that big a deal to others, but it's my storm and it's, it's the most important thing in my life. Lord, help us when we face a storm 
to call on Jesus. Help us to recognize and trust that he will rescue us. Lord, we're counting on that. Lord, we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never taken that step to invite Jesus into your boat, we're going to sing in just a moment. And there'll be some folks down front. We'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you're going through one of these storms. I don't know. Maybe something we haven't even talked about this morning. I want to invite you to come if you need somebody to pray with you. Or maybe just pray for somebody who you love dearly who's going down the wrong path. And they're dealing with all kinds of the consequences as a result of bad decisions. Whatever the case is, we'd love to minister to you and with you. So feel free to come as we stand together and as we worship our King of Kings, the great I am.